If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The idea that people should be advanced in life based on their talents rather than family connections was a once revolutionary theory that took the world by storm. In his new book, Aristocracy of Talent, Adrian Wooldridge explores the role that meritocracy has played in shaping our modern world and weighs up some of the challenges and advantages of living in a meritocratic system. I spoke to him to find out more. Your new book is all about the role of meritocracy in shaping the modern world. So meritocracy has taken on many different guises over history. How would you define it? Well, I think that the the core meaning of meritocracy is that we judge people on the basis of their individual abilities and individual promise rather than on the basis of their family connections Um, and their status in life, their inherited status. But I would say that there is no fixed meaning of the term. One of the messages of this book is that this is a very protean term. It's changed its meaning very dramatically over time, and its meaning is, is, is changing even today. So I think when you go back to the Enlightenment, let's say, Um, the 18th century, um, people, when they talked about merit, would really be talking about virtues as much as about abilities, very much a judgment on people's character and personal qualities. When you move more into the middle of the 20th century, it's much more tightly defined as uh, much more tightly identified with intelligence and mental abilities. And it may be changing again in its meaning. So um, the, the the book is both a history of the rise of the meritocracy and a history of the changing meaning of this, this term merit, but always with the sense that it means judging people on the basis of them as people rather than their position in society. Can you tell us about some of the regimes or societies that have adopted meritocracy? Because it's not always just been liberal democracies, has it? Absolutely not. Uh, There's a long section of this book called um, Meritocracy uh, Before Modernity. Uh, And the first person really to draw up a blueprint for a meritocracy, or the first person in the West to draw up a a blueprint for a meritocracy, was Plato uh, in The Republic. And The Republic is an extraordinary, extraordinary, interesting book. Um, And what he says in this book is that the governors of of society should be philosophers, the kings should be philosophers, uh, and that you will choose these philosophers on the basis of their ability from the whole of society. Uh, He talks about men of gold. These are the philosophers. But he says that men of gold can be born anywhere. They can have parents of uh, of silver. 
that's the middle class of society, or of bronze, that's the bottom class of society. And that one of the key functions of statecraft is constantly to sift through society for people of gold, wherever they appear, and promote them to leadership roles in society. That's a very radical view in what was a fundamentally aristocratic society to say that we we must find talent wherever uh, it occurs, uh, and that by nature, talent always occurs, not quite arbitrarily, but but, but but widely throughout the whole of society. Also, Plato has another revolution there, and that he says that women are as intelligent as men. So he pre- presents it in rather unflattering terms. Uh, he says, if you look at dogs, um, you will not define the whole of the life of a female dog just by the fact that she has puppies. And he says, well, so it is with humans. You can't define the, ho- the whole of a, of, of a woman's life just by the fact that she, she, she has children. Um, so an unflattering way of presenting an exceptionally radical idea. This was a society that was ruled uh, by men. He said, no, women are just as clever. They're just as, just as uh, characterful. They're just as likely to, to be philosophers. So he draws this incredibly radical idea that women should be promoted on the basis of their abilities. And then he says, well, how can we do this uh, in society when we have all these pressures for child rearing? Um, And he says, well, we just confiscate the children. Uh, We just collectify the child rearing. We confiscate the children from from their mothers and fathers and and bring them up collectively in order to create equality of opportunity, an incredibly harsh and unpleasant, but also an incredibly radical vision. So you have Plato, and that's view of merit and meritocracy resounds uh, throughout the history of the uh, of of the west you see when when you get to the renaissance you have people looking at plato's idea of selecting talent from throughout society the humanists are preaching this when you get to the 19th century in britain another upsurge in meritocracy you have the same thing uh, saying that the civil service should be um reformulated on the basis of open competition and plato provides a model for that uh, so plato a very long standing influence at the same time you have China. Um, And China not only produces a very radical set of ideas about sifting the entire population for for talent, but it does more than Plato did because it actually puts it into practice. China, from a very early period onwards, from about the 10th century onwards, has introduced an examination regime, which is designed to sift the population, as I said. And at the height of this uh, examination regime, they're testing about 10% of the entire population on the basis of how well they can perform in written examinations and promoting them to positions running the the empire. And this is a system that really lasts from the 9th and 10th centuries all the way through to the early 20th century. So China is a regime ruled by a meritocratic elite. And the very term Mandarin, which we use to describe senior civil servants, is, is, is based on the Chinese Mandarins who are selected by this examination process. If you look at an examination book guiding you in with, with the ideal questions and uh, answers to questions, uh, when Queen Elizabeth was on the throne in, in, in 1600, um, and you, t- you use that for an examination in 1900, you would get that you do well in the examination. I, it was still a relevant book. So the examinations didn't change that much, which explains two things about China. One, one is why it was so extraordinarily 
forward-looking in creating an examination system, but secondly, why it became frozen, because this examination system just didn't change. It was all the Confucian uh, Confucian classics that were being tested. You mentioned there about um, this idea of Plato's about sifting out the gold men from society. Apart from examinations, what have been some of the other mechanisms of meritocracy that have been implemented over time? Absolutely. Well, the Chinese system is very, very focused on examinations, as you say. But Plato wasn't particularly himself concerned with examinations. I'm not sure quite how he would have selected his men of gold. He would have had um, other men of gold and women of gold to spot them. And they would have been spotted very early on and then rigorously trained um, for their positions. He doesn't talk much about examinations, uh, really. He talks about he talks a great deal about what education uh, would involve. And these, uh, uh, for him, um, very interestingly, uh, w- with with Plato, he's concerned with the with the creation of a philosophical elite. So these must be people who can think philosophically, but they're not selected purely on the basis of. IQ uh, or intelligence, whatever you would have called it then. They're also selected on the basis of character. He's very, very concerned with character, if if they're good, have a good character, and also training the character. And by that, he means public spiritedness more than anything else. And he's very, very concerned with physical qualities, their strength, their their, their physical endurance. uh, He's very preoccupied by... um, uh, athletic training, athleticism is a very important part of the the whole process. And in fact, if you look at the history of selection um, down the down the years, examinations become very central to this. Uh, as I say, pioneered by China, but 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 taken up elsewhere. But also, a lot of people who are looking for uh, a ruling class, a guardian class, do so on the basis of physical uh, athletic abilities, um, and also on the basis of character. So, if you look at the British public schools uh, from the mid nineteenth century onwards, they have examinations. Um, they're very important to them, but they also have an emphasis on character training, on your and on your performance in in sports. You're supposed to be a Christian gentleman, um, and you're supposed to be an all rounder with cricket and rugby and the rest of it. And even if you look at the one of the most um, demanding examination systems that we've had, which is the the system for selecting the enarch, the sort of the top top civil service uh, in France, a whole part of the examination is physical skills, physical endurance. So you're actually measured if you're going to become uh, one of the top people in France um, on sporting ability, as well as all these other examination abilities. You describe meritocracy as a revolutionary idea. And I think that's just worth digging into a little bit, because I think for many of us, especially in the West these days, we see it as a a default position, really. Um, We're so used to meritocracy now. But of course, that wasn't always the case. Can you speak a bit about that transition from an old world order to a new world order of meritocracy? Um, we, I've, I've spoken at some length about Plato and about China. Um, but China was peculiar. The rest of the world wasn't like China. And Plato was simply a book. It was an idea. Um, and what you saw in, the, 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 in society at large was a society in which people were overwhelmingly born into the positions they occupied. Uh, and uh, you, if you were called Thatcher, it was because you were a Thatcher. If you were a lord, it was because your father was a lord. So positions were inherited. Um, 
And the most important organization in society, the most important institution in society in many ways is the family. You inherit your your position as a member of a family and you define your identity as a member of a family. So you start off with the monarchy. The monarch will inherit their position because of who, who their parents are. It's directly biologically inherited. So society is regarded as static. It's a collection of um, ranks with the ruling class born to rule, the middle class born to be middle, the lower class born to serve. Um, and it's a, it's also a collection of families who um, command positions and hand positions on, on the basis of, of biology. So you start off with the, with the king, you have all the, the aristocrats, the, the magnets, again, who live in their big houses, they pass those houses on to their children. And thirdly, the third and most extraordinary element uh, of this old world is that jobs were not regarded as things that you got on merit because you could perform them. Uh, they were regarded as things that people owned um, and could be transmitted to their children. They could be inherited uh, or transmitted to by patronage to somebody that you knew and liked or trusted or that could actually be bought and sold. So jobs were much more like furniture um, than they were like um, commitments to do actual tasks. So a society that's hierarchical, uh, a society that's driven by families and family connections, and a society that treats jobs as property and rewards and baubles that could be handed out uh, on the basis of um, who you were, what relationship you were to, to me, and whether you grovel to me, that sort of thing. So you, you, you think of when, let's say, when Louis XVI is getting up in the morning. He gets up in the morning, he has to get dressed in a relatively public place. He has to live the rest of his day in a relatively public place. He eats in a public place. Um, people watch him eating, he goes hunting. All the time that he's going through his life, pageanting about, um, he's being pestered by people asking for jobs. And if he likes them or if they have a connection to him or if he's advised to, he will give them a job. He doesn't know who they are uh, or he doesn't know if they're competent at doing the job. He's giving these jobs out because he's the king. He possesses these jobs and he can give them all out. And that was society um, really up until, the let's say, the French Revolution. That was a lot of what human history is about. So uh, dynasty, uh, jobs as property society as, a, as an ordered hierarchy has been the case throughout most of history. And this thing comes along, meritocracy, which blows all of that up. And it's completely revolutionary. It replaces the family with the individual. It replaces hierarchy with mobility. And it replaces a job as property with a job as a set of obligations that you have to perform in order to, in order to hold it. I wanted to ask you about the process of meritocracy replacing the old world order, because it was a lot smoother in some places than others, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The great meritocratic breakthrough took place in the West. So we have a, a situation, which I talked about earlier, whereby China is the country which creates the first examination state. Um, but it nevertheless, that system atrophies. It doesn't change. It doesn't evolve. And what happens in the West is that you get the rise of meritocracy that goes along with the rise of capitalism, the rise of science, the rise of new ways of thinking. So the really great, significant meritocratic breakthrough comes in the West rather than in the East. Uh, and this comes in the form of three revolutions, 
two violent revolutions and one much smoother uh, revolution. There's the American Revolution, which declares that everybody should be judged on the basis of their individual abilities, of their merits. And the great philosophers of the uh, American Revolution, particularly Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and John Adams, are obsessed with this notion of merit, how you measure it, how you identify it, how you promote people uh, who, are, uh, who possess this, this quality of merit. And they push this through with violence, a certain amount of violence. It's a, it's a, it's a revolution. They kick out the, the British, but it's relatively, relatively uh, peaceful by the standards of, uh, of revolutions and relatively quick that they create this society in which you're supposed to be judged by, by your merits with the one extraordinary exception of, of the South and, and slavery. Um, and that, that's a constantly an extraordinary and difficult thing where you have these people, particularly Jefferson, um, who is saying that everybody must be judged on their abilities. We, you know, everybody has the same rights to uh, rise up society uh, and then also is a, is, is a slave keeper. So that's the extraordinary uh, American contradiction there. In France, you have a similar revolution in which people say we must replace the artificial aristocracy with um, of uh, of, of aristocrats and their ladies with the natural aristocracy of talent and virtue. So again, a much, much bl bloodier process with, 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 with executions on a very large scale, a huge uh, European war, but the same vision basically of a society stratified not by birth, but by ability, virtue and talent. So, and again, that takes place quite quickly um, uh, and takes odd directions because Napoleon comes along and Napoleon wants to keep this meritocratic idea, but then marry it in some way by bringing back the, with the old aristocracy in an extraordinary uh, process of, of um, dithering between, between two ideas. Then the third example is what happens in, in, in England and perhaps, it, or Britain, I should say, perhaps it's because I'm British, but I think this is the most fascinating of them because you move in Britain from an aristocratic society in which jobs are bought and sold or given as sinecures, in which an aristocratic elite holds all the, 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 the cars and rules to a society that is broadly meritocratic. Um, from the mid-19th century onwards, you have open competition introduced in the civil service by Gladstone, um, who says essentially that you can get a civil service job on the basis of your performance in an examination. Um, the Oxford and Cambridge, get they, they had a system whereby fellowships were inherited, given to members of, of particular families, not particularly intellectually demanding, and they, they moved to a system whereby you have to win them by examination, essentially. Slowly after that, but a ladder of opportunity being constructed to link these open institutions selecting on merit with the rest of society so that people can be educated and, and move up. And that is, it's a very slow process. And, you know, you don't have a meritocracy until everybody has equality of opportunity. And that really doesn't come at, come until the Second World War. But it's, it happens without a, any bloodshed. It happens without a shot really being fired. So you move from one order of society, uh, the order in which male aristocrats rule, to another order of society in which power is transferred to people on the basis of intellectual ability without, without violence. A great revolution. It may be a slightly um, impossible question, but 
I wonder how you see the relationship between meritocracy and the emergence of modernity. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Do you see meritocracy as triggering this kind of supercharged development or do you see it to be a product of that? I see meritocracy as the very essence of modernity. I would say that meritocracy is more the essence of modernity in many ways than freedom, which is quite often contingent on on, on a lot of other things, or even indeed uh, than, than, than capitalism, um, because you can have modernity without capitalism. I don't really think that you can have a successful modernity without meritocracy. I think you have to have a system that will uh, judge people on the basis of their abilities, their ability to perform certain jobs. So I would say that um, the essence of modernity, the transition from a pre-modern society to a modern society is the rise of meritocracy. So you would see um, meritocracy as playing a fundamental role in in what? In making societies more productive and making them more efficient and making them more equal? What would you argue there? Um, all of those things and more. I would say that in order to have um, in order to have a modern society which um, produces a surplus that makes modernity uh, possible, you need to have a system of meritocratic allocation. I don't think you can have an efficient army or an efficient state or a productive, really productive economy without having some sort of mechanism that um, links abilities and performance with jobs. I think that's absolutely essential. But I also think, see, meritocracy as being part of a collection of values that are that are identical with modernity, really. If you go back to the world I was describing before, the world of priority, degree, and place, in which everybody is born into a certain position, that is associated with a whole series of attitudes which are pre-modern. It's the idea that family matters more than the individual. It's the idea that you inherit your place in society rather than achieve your place in society. It's the idea that the work intelligence, ability are somehow to be despised. And what really matters is your honour, your aristocratic honour or your lack of aristocratic honour. That's extravagance, that a certain sort of lackadaisical aristocratic style are all part of civilised life. And when modernity comes along, it says that what matters is the individual, ambition, ability, social promotion, social climbing, whatever you want to call it. All of those things are coincidence uh, are part of modernity. So I think so far so good really in our conversation. We've had this wave of meritocracy that's come and brushed away an old decrepit world order but it's not always been that simple has it because a lot of criticisms have been leveled against meritocracy over time. I wonder if you could run us through a couple of those. The man who invented the word meritocracy was Michael Young and he wrote a book in 1958 called The Rise of the Meritocracy. And the interesting thing about this book is that it was a condemnation of meritocracy. It was a very hostile account of meritocracy. And it was hostile because he said that what happens in meritocracy is you have nobody to blame but yourself. If you don't succeed, the only person who bears the blame for that lack of success is you. Um, and he says, if you live in an aristocratic society with limited opportunities, you can always say it's the result of the aristocrats, it's the result of a lack of opportunities. But once you get a society in which everybody has a chance to get ahead, then most people don't get ahead. Most people are at the bottom of society by, by, by logic, you know, most people are not at the top. Uh, and 
you only have yourself to blame. And he said that what meritocracy produces is a much more unhappy society in which people um, blame themselves for their lack of ability. So there's, there's, you, you remove the, the excuse, the cushion of aristocratic privilege. So he says it's a competitive and unpleasant society. There are many, many other um, criticisms of meritocracy. One is that it's a facade, it's a pretense, that people pretend that they're at the top because of merit, um, and in fact, they're not. They're at the top because their parents passed on educational privileges to them. To, to, to them, And also that it sort of institutionalizes the rat race, com- constant competition. And people are very sensitive to that, particularly now. Um, I think that universities, schools have become very, very competitive. So there are a whole series of quite powerful uh, criticisms of, 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 of meritocracy. In, and indeed, as I say, Michael Young wanted that criticism to be the defining feature of the word. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. One of the many dark sides of, of meritocracy is in order to have upward social mobility, you have to have downward social mobility. Now, not total, because society gets richer and you have more opportunities, but a certain amount of downward social mobility, and that's against what every parent wants. We spoke a bit about gender earlier, but I also wanted to ask you about race because it's been argued that meritocracy would reinforce um, structures of racial oppression. Do you think that that's a fair criticism? And how has meritocracy played out in terms of race in the past? That's an extraordinarily difficult and complicated uh, question. I think the, the essence of meritocracy is the idea that people should be judged according to their individual abilities that they should be judged not as uh, a biological grouping or an ethnic or a racial grouping, but as a collection of individuals. Um, and that's its revolutionary potential. It says we mustn't be judging people um, as um, what they are, what they are in terms of gender or biology, but what their potential is in terms of their mental abilities. So it's a profoundly, fundamentally individualistic theory. And I think that has an extraordinarily liberating and radical role when it comes to gender. When open competition was first introduced in Britain, let's say, in the mid-19th century, they these people who introduced it, uh, like Thomas Macaulay and, and uh, Charles Trevelyan, civil servant reformers, uh, said, we've got to judge everybody on their abilities, on their individual abilities. We've got to give them examinations which test their individual abilities. Get rid of all these lazy aristocrats and replace them by industrious swats like us. And they did all of these things. They said all of these things. And what's so extraordinary about that is they didn't even think of women at the time. So they're, they're opening comp- you know, s- civil service jobs and fellowships at Oxford colleges and Cambridge colleges to individual ability. But they don't think, well, aren't the women just as clever as the men, as Plato had, uh, had argued. But then very rapidly, their sisters, as it were, the, the, the sisters of the men who rise through competition and merit, begin to say, um, what about us? What about women? Why can't women be judged in the same examinations? And they begin slowly, but surely and relentlessly to open these competitions to women. And indeed, women do just as well as men in the competitions. Uh, And, you you know, people begin to say, wait a minute, they're supposed to be housewives, but yet they're clever. They can do well in these examinations. There's an extraordinary moment in the 1890s when uh, a a woman called uh, Fawcett sits the... um, the Cambridge uh, tripos in mathematics. And um, she's not allowed to, to, to get a result formally. She's allowed to sit it, but Cambridge didn't allow women to take 
final examinations until the 1940s. But this woman, in the most difficult subject there is, gets the best mark in the university. Um, And that is an extraordinary statement uh, about why all of these prejudices were wrong. Women can do just as well as men in incredibly hard subjects, in very physically and mentally demanding examinations, and they can beat all the men. So that sort of thing has an extraordinary series of consequences. You know, it destroys anti-female prejudice. Now, how does this apply to, to race? I think there's a lot of this that goes on with race as well, that once you open examinations to uh, ethnic minorities, they do very well. You have somebody like Frederick Douglass in the uh, in the United States, who's obviously one of the cleverest people in the country. I mean, a brilliant uh, speaker. He's read everything. He knows everything. So the whole notion that there's a racial hierarchy is, uh, which is a very common idea uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, incredibly common idea, is challenged by the fact that uh, that black people are doing very well in examinations. But, and there's a big but here, you do have the problem that on average, the black population is not doing as well as the white population, uh, particularly in the United States. And that raises the question, why? Um, and the question why, of course, is they don't have the same educational opportunities. They don't have the the, the schools aren't as good. They're on average much poorer. They they have poorer childhood education, poorer childhood nutrition, and all of these sorts of things. But you do have this extraordinary thing to struggle with. We have a society based on equality of opportunity, and yet one group, if you look at it as a collective, on average, is doing less well than another group, I, uh, the black population is not doing as well as the white population. So that creates the question, what do you do about this? And what America did was under Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s, create a program of affirmative action, which says you've got to give African-Americans a better chance than they've got to compensate for the fact that they've been taken into slavery and held in slavery and subjected to Jim Crow for all of these things for 150 years. So you have this paradox in meritocracy really, that meritocracy is about judging people on the basis of their individual abilities. But in order to judge people who've been discriminated against on the basis of their individual abilities, you have to give some sort of compensation. And that's led to very, very passionate arguments about affirmative action and how that fits in with individual ability. But it must be right that if people have been discriminated against for a prolonged period of time, if they have, because of that discrimination, lower average incomes, much, much lower average household wealth, you have to have some sort of uh, set of compensation. So Lyndon Johnson, uh, he gave a speech um, in in 1965 at Howard University uh, when he said, you can't just take somebody who's been held in chains, put them at the start line of a race, uh, take off the change and say, go compete with everybody else on equal terms. You have to try, you have to actively intervene to um, provide a level playing field. Mm. Um, in the book, you talk about, it's not a question of meritocracy being perfect. It's just whether it has less problems than alternative systems. But I was wondering whether you have in your mind any examples of the closest anyone might have got to a true or uncorrupted meritocracy in time, or perhaps a golden age of meritocracy? I regard the golden age of meritocracy in the West as being the period after the Second World War, after 1945. From about 1945 up to about um, 1970, 
Um, that was partly because um, you were getting, you had a big expansion of educational opportunity. The school leaving age was raised to 15 and then to 16. You had the creation of a lot of new schools. Uh, you had the creation of lots of new white-collar jobs, it, um, which gave people more opportunities. In the United States, you had the introduction, because of the GI Bill, of free university education to anybody who'd been uh, who'd, who'd fought in the war um, and could then go to university free. So you had an extraordinary increase in opportunity. And what you saw with that huge increase in opportunity was that there was an enormous amount of ability uh, in the population at large that had been ignored. Uh, and what you saw after that was a massive process of upward social mobility. Um, because of that, 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 that talent finding it in its natural level. And I think that begins to slow down um, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, partly because of um, what I call a marriage between money and merit, that people who um, are rich begin to buy more educational opportunities for themselves, partly because you get rid of selective schools, which are a way of giving uh, more opportunities to working-class children. So I think we've had a slowdown. So I regard that the meritocratic moment in history, the golden age of meritocracy as the uh, immediate period after the Second World War. Now, the, the one example I would add to that is modern Singapore, which I think is, is an extraordinarily meritocratic uh, system. That's a country that's taken meritocracy further than anywhere else and continues to do so. Um, one of the key criticisms, as you mentioned, of meritocracy is that it kind of takes privilege siphons it off into small enclaves that then people can pass down to their children through education or, or what have you. But you argue that meritocracy is capable of self-correction. I wonder if you could explain what you mean by that. Absolutely. I think the history of meritocracy, uh, since it became established as, as, as the main way of governing society, is a history of self-correction. Um, that is not that meritocracy is an idea that's just fixed and you take it or leave it. It's, it's a protein idea and a self-correcting idea. So I talked a little bit earlier about the idea that the people who, who, create, who introduced open competition didn't think about their sisters. It was just for men. Well, when the sisters started making a bit more noise about it, they said, oh, well, actually, it, it doesn't make any logical sense. We'll extend it to, to, to women as well. After the Second World War, there was this idea, well, it's not enough just to have open competition. You need to have lots of educational opportunities so people can discover their talents in order to express them. So again, you've got a, the creation of a welfare state, which gave much more educational uh, chances uh, to, to, to poorer people. So it's a self-correcting, it's an evolving um, idea. And I think we need to have another series of self-corrections at the moment, because I think what has happened is that the cognitive elite, the liberal elite, people like you and me, have rather captured this idea of meritocracy. Um, it served us well. We want our children to do well uh, in the system. And it's become sort of corrupted by money and privilege and, correct and connection. And what we need to do is have another blast at sort of purifying it. And I advocate in this book that there are two ways of, of, of um, invigorating it. Uh, one is to have more uh, selection, looking for very bright children uh, who come from poorer families, poorer backgrounds, and giving them uh, speeded up enhanced education, 
So I argue in this book that, for, for example, private public schools, private schools should take at least 50% of their children, but they should have scholarships for at least half of their, for their children. I argue we should, we should have special ways of, various ways of, of spotting talent and promoting talent early on. And I say that one of the best ways of doing this is to have um, tests of ability, basically as much as possible, objective tests, IQ tests, SATs, various form of, of objective tests in order to select people, preferably at a young age. But um, the problems that we have with meritocracy, actually problems that go all, all the way, were identified very, very early on by Plato. Uh, when Plato says that the, the, the great problem is that families will try and look after themselves, it's natural for parents to look after their children, um, and they will try and promote their children into the guardian class, whether they're guardians or not. Uh, Plato's uh, solutions to this are extreme. Uh, he not only says that you must have a system of communal child rearing, he says you must have a system of state-sponsored orgies so that there's no nobody knows who the parents of, of the children are. They're, they're, they're collectively created and collectively raised, and then you, 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 you choose the guardians um, from that. Now, that's clearly insane. But what you have to do with meritocracy is to push against the natural instincts of, children, of parents to hoard opportunities for their own children and to give their children. That, that's a natural thing to do. And society has to push back in some way against that. And I would say that the way of doing that is to have schools actively looking for talent and looking for talent on the basis of tests that are as objective as possible. Because the one of the many dark sides of, of meritocracy is in order to have upward social mobility, you have to have downward social mobility. Now, not total, because society gets richer and you have more opportunities, but a certain amount of downward social mobility. And that's against what every parent wants. So that's why you have to have an active um, state seeking talent and promoting talent. One of the questions that meritocrats have always had to grapple with that I wanted to put to you is just... Where does it leave everybody else? So if we have this, sure. um, you know, cognitive elite, even if they're coming from the from the lowest rungs of society, what about those who aren't cognitively able? Where does meritocracy leave them? Absolutely, a vital question. And I think the most important thing to understand is that we have to replace um, selection by elimination with selection by differentiation. You have to understand that there are lots and lots of different types of t talent, lots of different types of ability. And what we've become, we fetishized in our current society, intellectual ability. And we've almost uh, created a sorting system that sorts for intellectual ability and nothing else. And it allocates respect, status and opportunity purely on the basis of intellectual ability. Now, intellectual ability matters a great deal. It's in many ways the rocket fuel that drives a, a lot of the most productive sectors of the economy. But there's a lot more to life than that. Technical ability, vocational ability, all of these things are, are vital. And in fact, we have huge shortages, I think, of people with those with those skills and those, uh, and, and those talents. So what you need to have is a, a system um, in which we have much better technical and vocational training, uh, and much more willingness to for parents to say that's a very valid and good thing for my for my children to be doing. So instead of everybody going to university to study some variation of the same academic subjects, you need a wider range of institutions um, 
catering for a wider name of, range of abilities and talents. Now, what happened, strangely enough, in Britain in 1944 is exactly what that was exactly what they were saying. They're saying we need to have a tripartite education system, uh, differentiation rather than elimination. Then everybody got so obsessed with grammar schools, technical schools weren't funded. The whole technical stream disappeared. But if you look at Germany now, um, Germany has a vocational stream, very, very good apprenticeships, very good technical education. And I think because of that, much less cultural angst and discontent than we have because of our obsession with sheep and goats and the rest of it. As a final question, I just wanted to ask you about what you think that we get wrong when we think about meritocracy's role in shaping the world that we live in. I think the thing that we get wrong, most of all, is that we see it as an instrument of the domination of the successful. Um, and the perpetuation of privilege. Now, I think that we get that wrong partly because it has become that much more than it used to be. But I think if you step back and look at the broad sweep of history, it's been much more a way in which underprivileged, marginalised or excluded groups have got their just rewards. And I think women is a classic example of that. People who weren't considered to be fit to do difficult jobs demonstrated through examinations that they were perfectly fit to do it and then indeed were were given those jobs. So I, I think it's much more a, a matter of inclusion rather than exclusion, much more a matter of radical social change than of preserving the status quo. That was Adrian Waldridge. His book, The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World, was published earlier this month by Alan Lane. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow when Kate Morgan will be discussing the history of murder. This week is Medieval Kings and Queens Week on HistoryExtra.com in which we'll be exploring the lives of famous monarchs, the realities of rulership and the secrets of surviving on the throne. To find out more, visit historyextra.com and click on the banner on our homepage.